according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 6, looking at these uh, seven deadly sins. Actually, that's not what they're labeled. Um, That's a different thing, if you ever want to get into medieval Roman uh, traditions. Uh, Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. And we've covered four of them, actually five. So we've got two more to cover here today, and then we can move on to verses 20 through 35. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to set aside distractions and to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to uh, open our ears, Father, to minister your word to our souls. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is point four in the outline. We've been in for about 20 weeks now, but I exaggerate. Yahweh hates the abomination of his soul, the abominations of of his soul. And it is a hate application here in verses 16 through 19. It's not a hate crime, all right? It is the legitimate expression of God's character and integrity uh, towards those things that are an abomination to his soul. And it's not a lack of love that causes him to hate. It is infinite love that causes him to hate. They are not true antonyms as we think of either or uh, opposites or antonyms. They are both applications of his holiness, both love and hate. In this respect, we've been working our way through it. In fact, we saw the contrast in subpoint A. It is not contradictory. Yahweh loves and hates in his non-contradictory perfection. In fact, if he did not hate the things that he hates, then his love would be diminished. All right? And I think if he did not love what he loved, his hate would be diminished. And we want to understand how both are applicable based upon his own integrity. This really ought to be the... uh, the, the fullness of any agape study where we realize the objects of our agape love are not on the basis of what they have earned or deserved. It's on the basis of our own transformed integrity, our own character as we're molded into the image of Christ. Our very being will have the same attitude that God himself has with respect to love and hate applications. Uh, point B, we looked at the terminology for abomination. Point C, we uh, discussed the nature of this formula, the X and the X plus 1 formula. In this case, it's the 6 and 7. In other passages, it's 3 and 4, it's 5 and 6. There's different ways that uh, the Hebrew uh, Old Testament will use the formula, but it's always a number, like the number X, and then X plus 1. Uh, so in this case, it's 6 and 7. And any time that formula is used, the emphasis is to be placed on the final item. It's that seventh item. It's that final item on the list that's being, that's being stressed. It's another way of saying, well, you know, uh, I'll, I, I hate six of these things, but boy, that seventh one is where it just crosses the line. That seventh one is where uh, it's just finally the straw that breaks the camel's back, if you will. And so 
as we work our way through these hate items, what we're really heading up to is uh, one who spreads strife among brothers. It's the strife spreader that is the pinnacle of God's hatred. The spreading of strife because it's the antithesis of who God is. God himself is a reconciling God. He is uh, one that will bring brothers together. He's the one that even brings uh, sinners to himself. Even at the cost of his own son, he will bring sinners to himself. And so as a father, his nature is to bring people together. And what he hates more than anything else is the one that drives people apart, the strife spreader, and because it's the diametrically opposed activity to his very nature. And that's what we're going to see here today. So we've already covered uh, the first five of these, the sovereign soul's sanah. Remember, sanah is the Hebrew for hatred, and it is the hatred of his soul, literally, in, uh, in this it says seven which are an abomination to him. Literally, it's to his soul, to his soul. And so the sovereign soul, Sanah, is stimulated by these seven sins. And uh, starting with eyes, and the first five are body parts. Eyes, Ramoth, the haughty eyes, exalted. The eyes that think you're better than everybody else as you're looking around you. The tongue, the tongue, uh, the shekher, the deceiving tongue, the lying tongue. Um, and this is going to be different. Today we're going to have to expand on this because the lying tongue is the lying tongue. Well, what do we do then when we get to the false witness who utters shekher, who utters lies, all right? And uh, we'll talk about that here in a moment because it's different than just your garden variety lying, okay? The, the lying tongue is lying in general, being an untruthful person in general, uh, telling the untruth. That's lying. The uh, false witness is, is a judicial aspect, and we'll discuss that here in a moment. Hands that shed innocent blood, the third body part are the hands that shed innocent blood, whereas shedding blood is sometimes necessary, it's even commanded, uh, it's not innocent blood at that point when it's necessary and it's commanded. It is shedding the necessary blood under those circumstances. But innocent blood must be protected. It is, it is uh, again, an attack on God's plan, his character, uh, that the loving God who reconciles fallen humanity to himself, the uh, means by which he does so is innocent blood the blood of our Savior, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so uh, our Father defends innocent blood in every application and uh, holds us accountable for the shedding of innocent blood in our application. Uh, then the fourth body part is the heart. The heart, as we read it here, that devises wicked plans. The fact that God has crafted us to be creative and then we use that God-given creativity to craft and design and plan for darkness. He, God hates that. See, stumbling into wickedness is bad enough if it's a stumble, if it's a true stumble, if it was not planned, if it was not willful and defiant. See, it was just, a, you know, it was a moment you were carnal, you weren't expecting things, you didn't think it through, and yeah, we all stumble in many ways, all right? But far worse than uh, the typical uh, sin stumbling is when you creatively and inventively devise these wicked plans. He has crafted us to be creative and inventive, but to do so under positive volition for the glory of Jesus Christ, not under negative volition for, uh, for our own lusts. And there's the, uh, the issues there. We dealt with that last week. Finally then, the feet. 
the feet that run rapidly to evil. So now we've gone from head to toe, practically. All right. Uh, in, in other words, there is no member of your body that's not capable of bringing dishonor to Jesus Christ. All right. From your eyes to your lips to your tongue to your feet to your hands to other body parts are very capable of uh, defying the will of God and bringing dishonor to the name of Jesus Christ. Feet that run rapidly to evil, we're talking about the eagerness, the readiness, uh, the uh, speed at which at the drop of a hat you're ready to just run off into anything that uh, defies Jesus Christ. In fact, not only the drop of a hat, you'll drop the hat yourself if you have to. <laughs> All right, That's how eager you are. And we should have a readiness or an eagerness oriented towards the will of God. This is what pleases God. God loves the cheerful giver. He loves the eager believer that's positive to his service. Um, aspects there, we understand, in terms of giving, in terms of teaching, in terms of any spiritual ministry, it can't be grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver, and that reflects the attitude of eagerness. And eagerness is rewardable. Even if you can't even do the thing you want to do, the attitude that wants to do it gets rewarded. And uh, principles there that I think are useful because there's a lot of things that we want to do, that we're eager to do, and when the Lord opens a door of opportunity, we will do them. In the meantime, we'll stay eager and we'll stay rewardable based upon uh, what we have, not upon what we don't have. And uh, the Lord's in charge of that too. He knows what we have and He knows what we don't have. All right. Now we come to the sixth and the seventh items, the uh, false witness who utters lies. Now here we no longer have a body part, so I'm going to kind of change the the point up there. False witnesses. False witnesses who utter lies. And it's not a a body part that has a description attached to it like all the previous ones. In this case, it's an entire expression, the yafiq. Kazavim Eid Shaker that we have here. Now the Eid Shaker, the last expression, is the repetition from the previous one. We had the, the tongue Sheker before, right? We had the Lashon uh, Sheker before. Now we've got the Eid Sheker. And what's worse than lying is lying when you are on the witness stand. Lying when you are engaged in an official judicial function. And that's what we have here with false witness. This is what the command is about in the Ten Commandments, in the Decalogue, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. And so when we get to the sixth item of what God hates, this is taking lying to a whole new level. Above and beyond the lying tongue, the false witness who utters lies, he snorts them, he breathes them out, who utters deceptions, perverts justice through the undermining of governmental authority. And so, uh, as we understand it, in the Ten Commandments and uh, other applications of this vocabulary, let's go to Exodus chapter 20. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments, I hope. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. So we've got the early commandments that uh, are God-focused, God, uh, oriented towards God himself, and then uh, that culminates with the Sabbath day, and then we take the uh, remainder of these commandments as it applies to man or earthward uh, in uh, honoring your father and your mother, uh, thou shalt not murder, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, except for one tragic edition of, of an early King James Bible. Uh, I think it was 1613, uh, when they had a publication of, of uh, with a misprint 
in the uh, in the text, and the the government immediately ordered the complete seizure of of all of those Bibles so they could be burned and destroyed. And and then it was called the Adulterer's Bible, where they left the word "not" <laughs> out of verse fourteen. There. All right. Um, Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. And this is not just a generic command that, that, that to say, don't tell lies. All right? And we can, we can find that command elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, don't tell lies. But no, this is a precise uh, ban in a community. In the, the scope of this context is community. Notice the neighbor that's mentioned there. And the, the idea of being a witness don't be a false witness, all right? The malicious witness, the ones that are there to pervert justice, as was the case when our Savior was put on a cross. They could not find any evidence against him, so they had to put forth false witnesses. And even then they had trouble because they couldn't keep their story straight in the blasphemy that they were accusing him of and the different uh, the, the testimony that they gave was contradictory in that respect. And so any false witness is a perversion of justice. It is an attack on the justice of God. Human justice should be a reflection of God's justice, which is going to be absolute, which is going to be perfect, which is going to be fair in every regard. And if there are unjust scales, God condemns that. If there is uh, bribery, God condemns that. If there is unfair treatment, God condemns that. If the rich get a special treatment, God condemns that. And if the poor get special treatment, if the poor use the judicial system to steal from the rich, God condemns that. It, must, it has to be equal in every direction. So above and beyond the lying tongue is the false witness who utters lies. And, and th- these lies then perverts justice through the undermining of governmental Authority. Now, this is not the only time in Proverbs that this concept comes up. It starts here in Proverbs 6.19, but it comes back again in Proverbs 14 and again in Proverbs 19. And you'll see what I mean here. So let's look at Proverbs 14, verse 5 and verse 25. A trustworthy witness will not lie, but a false witness utters lies. And you see that the distinction here is not just in what they're doing, one lies, the other one doesn't, but it comes down to who they actually are. Are you a trustworthy witness or are you a false witness? And what is it that we're called to be? In many respects, the trustworthy witness does, does two things. First of all, he honors God through defending justice and, and, uh, and maintaining the, the, the governmental authority of, of society. But more than that, he foreshadows the perfection of our Savior. When Jesus Christ returns, what's his name? Faithful and true. He is the faithful witness. He is the one who came from heaven to testify of that which he knows. As opposed to, of course, the false witness, Antichrist, in his his, uh, activity there. Uh, Down to verse 25 of the same chapter. Uh, A truthful witness saves lives, but he who utters lies is treacherous. And so again, the contrast is between the faithful witness on the one hand and the false witness on the other hand, the one who utters, who breathes, who snorts lies. The term yafich, which is kind of interesting, yafich, um, the different expressions for breathing, the different expressions for nostrils, the different expressions for uh, anger, 
in some respects, yafik, and then the uh, plural noun, kazavim. Interestingly enough, was sheker plural? I don't recall. In uh, No, a tongue sheker was uh, singular. But here the kazavim, this term for lies, deceptions, might be better if you want to render it as deceptions instead of lies, if you want to have a different term besides sheker. Um, but they're plural. And you'll notice that if you're going to be on the record, <laughs> a lot of times it takes multiple lies to cover for the original lie. It is a system of deception that has an, uh, an inter- interweaving network of untruths that all come together and obviously um, easy to pull that thread and, and, and disprove such things unless the, judicial, the corrupt judicial system wants to maintain the, uh, the mythology for what it is. That's where I think it gets really bad. Finally then, uh, Proverbs 19. You know, and the, the worst thing too, I think, when this is, I mean, any lie is bad because it's untrue and it attacks the truth of God, but the, uh, the, the lies under oath that are sworn to be true, that become a matter of public record, they actually become the new publicly received truth. And, and as, a, as a matter of law, as a matter of, of judgment in the courts, it is a truth. You know, and we have a system whereby we accept certain things as, as not being true until proven, right? Innocent until proven guilty. Different aspects there. O.J. Simpson is innocent of murder because judicially he was acquitted, right? Judicially he is not a murderer. And that is now the accepted truth of society, of, of the state of California and in the, in the state court in which he was tried. And so a, a false witness ends up perverting and, and twisting the, the reality of the lie into now the new publicly accepted truth. And I find that interesting. <laughs> okay? And I'm looking forward to the day that we won't be dependent upon uh, juries of our peers to uh, determine the truth value of anything that's been done. We will have the omniscient Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that will execute immediate justice as uh, judge, jury, and executioner <laughs> Okay, in his uh, perfection. So, by the way, I'm not complaining. I think it's, our, our system is a good system that you want to prove things beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we are fallible creatures, <clears throat> and uh, you do want the laws of evidence to benefit, to uh, presume the innocence to the benefit of the, uh, of the uh, defendant. All right, chapter 19, verse 5 and verse 9. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. So there's a nice contrast between, on the one hand, the uh, legal uh, venue for the false witness in the court proceedings, and then on the other hand, the, uh, the simple matter of telling lies, both in view in that same verse. And then down to verse 9, a false witness will not go unpunished. He who tells lies will perish. All right, so those applications there. God hates the perversions of, of the judiciary. So is there any wonder why this nation presently comes under his displeasure when we have the best legal system that money can buy, right? All right, that's right. 
Which takes us now to our final one, the spreading of strife. The strife spreaders. Meshalech medanim bein achim. Between brothers. Bein and ubein, we're used to those. Bein achim, between brothers. The spreading of medanim. Now we've already studied strife earlier. Strife was a study for us back in verse 14. And we can uh, touch on that here this morning. But the idea of spreading is the idea of sending. Sending it forth. Launching it. The verb bashalach that can even be used to uh, shoot arrows or things of that nature. To send a messenger. To send an agent. To send an apostle. um, To send strife. When you're spreading strife between brothers, it doesn't just stop with the individual periphery. The nature of strife is like the nature of gangrene as it spreads and spreads and spreads. And so the poison as you, as you spread it not only affects your immediate blast radius, right? But then what, what happens when they go out? It, they're going to continue in, uh, in that spread. So the strife spreaders. Spreading is literally the sending of strife, the sending it forth. And if you think of the uh, promise in Isaiah that the word of God will not return void, it will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. All right. Well, strife will do the same thing. Strife will, uh, the uh, uh, Madan that we're looking at here, the Madanim, uh, the plurality of strife, it's going to accomplish its purpose for which it was sent. In, uh, of course, the nefarious ways uh, of which that is, de- <laughs> is designed to do. When we deal with a participle of shalach, we're stressing the agent of the verb. The participle of shalach, we're stressing the agent of the verb. That is the sender. The sender. Okay? And so we're not really going to look at all the instances of the verb. There's like 800 of them. There's, there's uh, literally hundreds of uses of sending. If you think about it, Everything gets sent in the Bible. Messengers and messages and people and, and uh, animals and all kinds of things will get sent. Angels will get sent. Uh, but the participle stresses the sender, the one who does it. Okay? Think about English if we uh, put an er on the end of something. If you farm, you're a farmer. If you teach, you're a teacher. Uh, and, and so we're stressing the, the er. We're stressing the, the person that does this. In this case, the sender. The sending one. Okay? And a handful of just three clear places here. I think it is significant. Um, Genesis 43. Here's a, a sender. And uh, this is where the boys are reluctant to go back to uh, Egypt until their dad sends Benjamin. But it's left in his sovereignty because he is the sender. Benjamin's not going to go and, until Jacob sanctions the, uh, the uh, journey. So Genesis 43, verse 4 and verse 5. Um, they've already had one trip to uh, Egypt, and uh, Simeon was left there as a hostage. They uh, are reluctant to go back because they can't explain why, but they're, the money they paid for the food that they bought uh, was back in the bag again when they... When they uh, got back home, and so now they're 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 stuck. They don't know what to do. They they're going to be accused of being thieves, and and they can't go back unless Benjamin's with them. Uh, the the Egyptian was very firm with them on that point. You have to have your brother with you when you come back. 
So as we see it here, Genesis 43.3, verse 2 is when Jacob says, go back and get us some more food. And Judah spoke to him, however, saying, the man solemnly warned us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. And this is not only our verb shalach, but it's the participle that we're looking at here, stressing the role of Jacob as the sender. If you send our brother with us, verse 4, we will go down and buy food. If you do not send him, if you are not a sender, again, it's the participle of shalach, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? (laughs) Couldn't you deny your brother at least once? Come on, we don't have another brother. Just deny that he even exists, right? Like the time I denied my sisters in the... (laughs) I denied my sisters in uh, in, in boot camp. Yeah, They, uh, they train you in your gas mask. Have I ever told this story? They train you in your gas mask, and they take you into what they call the disco hut, which is the little Douglas, I'm talking about, the uh, chamber there. They fill it up with, with CS gas, basically. And, and you're looking around, things are kind of normal because you're in your chemical suit, you're wearing your gas mask, everything's fine. And then they take you one by one, and they make you take your gas mask off. And then they start asking you questions. And if you try to hold your breath, they're going to ask you more questions. And, and so you don't hold your breath, but it gets miserable absolutely miserable and so they asked uh my brother's name and i said matthew they asked my sister's name i said mary and they said you have another sister and right then i was ready to die and so i completely disowned elizabeth i said no you know and i I was out of there and ran well i haven't thought about that in a long time now but here's Here is Israel saying, why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? <laughs> all right? and, uh, and that's what happens. You get selfish and uh, you think it's all about you. Israel says you're treating me badly and uh, things there. Anyway, I don't want to get lost in this. The, the chapter here is talking about the participle of sending, the participle of shalach. And that's what we have here. And the, the stress is on Jacob's authority in sending or not sending, or Israel's authority. Exodus chapter 8 and verse 21, another aspect of sending. Let my people go. If you are not the sender of Israel, stressing Pharaoh's responsibility as the sender, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you. So if you won't be the sender, I'm going to be a sender. (laughs) And send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and your houses and the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they dwell. But it's left in Pharaoh's authority to be the sender, to let Israel go. And if not, then God himself will be a sender. Leviticus 16.26 The blessings of the sender in terms of the scapegoat. Leviticus 16.26. And I like these. And you couldn't ask for three more different contexts or three more different kinds of passages than Jacob in Genesis 43 or Pharaoh in Exodus 8 or the scapegoat doctrine of, uh, of Leviticus 16. I mean, these are about as varied as illustrations as you could ask for. But I, I like that. All right. Um, so verse 26, the one who released the goat 
In other words, we have the participle of shalach, the sender, the releaser of the goat. Shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water, then afterward he shall come into the camp. He has a very special role to be. You know, we have the we we place the doctrine on the goat itself because of what the goat represents, but what about the sender of the goat? What is his blessing? And uh, how is he admitted back into the uh, into the camp? All right, you know, and in some respects, I think we need to maybe do more work on this uh, if we're going to completely identify the role of the Father on the cross, because we understand Jesus is the is the sent one. He is the the um, the scapegoat. He is the one on whom the sin is laid. He is the one who carries the sin away, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of course. But who is the one who sent him? All right, that's right, God the Father. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so it's the Father is the one who is the sending one the, uh, of, the, of the scapegoat. And so uh, in what way do we glorify him and understand his application on the cross? I think there's more that we ought to do on that. Now, speaking of the Father, speaking of the Father, couple of things I want to expand on this. I didn't give subpoints in 1 through 6, but we've got some subpoints here. Strife spreading is diametrically opposed to the work of God the Father in reconciling the world to himself. Strife spreading. And like I say, we've already covered the vocabulary on strife. That was uh, back under main point 3. And if you want to review those notes, uh, it was 3D. When we gave you the vocabulary of Madon and Madon, and uh, all the verses and Proverbs that relate to that. So I'm not going to take the time this morning to work through all of that. But understand, strife, when you stir up strife, what are you doing? Okay, Fundamentally, what are you doing? We understand when you kill somebody, that's easy, you're, you're, you're killing them. <laughs> okay? When you're telling lies, that's easy, that's what you're doing. But when you're spreading strife, what are you really doing? What's the whole point in spreading strife? You're driving people apart. You are driving people apart for whatever reason. You're driving people apart. This will come back again tonight when we look at the troublemakers in the Galatian church. They had troublemakers there that were politicking, they were schmoozing. And the whole point was to drive a wedge between the Galatians and Paul. They were trying to, to cause dissension between the Galatians and Paul so that they would be separate from him personally and then separate from his doctrine of grace. They had to spread that kind of strife in order to accomplish their purpose. Well, the spreading of strife to drive people apart, okay, is the antithesis of our Father's very nature. The Father's nature is to draw people together. The Father's nature is to enfold us in His arms. The Father's nature is to reconcile the world to Himself, even the fallen world. That's why He gave His Son. Such was the love of God the Father, that He gave His only begotten Son. All right, and so I think, uh, in fact, under point three, I listed uh, strife as the antithesis of love, but I think it's the antithesis of the Father's nature to bring people together, to bring people together, and that's the uh, the role of any father. Okay, um, think about John seventeen, and, and this boy. Here's a doctrine that you could really expand. Uh, but the Father's role in reconciling the world to Himself. Huh. 
High Priestly Prayer of John 17. read the whole chapter this morning, but um, it says in verse 22, well, the unity of this. He's praying for these disciples, and um, in verse 13 he says, Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. And so in this high priestly prayer, Jesus Christ is anticipating the 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 apostles, and then through them, then the church, the body of Christ, uh, in the world, but not of the world, and uh, how we're going to operate in this angelic conflict. And they're, and they're going to be, you know, you and I in the church are going to be objects of the world's hatred. I've uh, given them your word. The world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So the answer is don't go join a monastery or a commune or separate yourself from you know, create a, a, a guarded life where you don't even know any unbelievers or, you know, no, no, that's not the answer. The answer is, is that we, we stay separate in our attitudes and we are a witness um, to this lost and dying world. Sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world, okay? Now this is key because the Father is the sender, but now Jesus is the sender, and if we're going to understand the stress on the sending one uh, as the antithesis of, of, of the, the discord, then this becomes important because we are sent ones. We are sent ones in this world, both with apostello and with pimpo, both verbs. Okay, We are sent with a commission and we are sent otherwise. All right, so keep that verse in your thinking as we look at this. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. The character of the sending one is vital. If Jesus Christ does not sanctify himself, then he's not qualified to be a sending one to sanctify us in the truth. So verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And this is huge too, because this means that it's not limited to the twelve. It's not limited to the apostles. The idea of being a sent one is not limited simply to the apostolic age or to these twelve apostles of the Lamb. It applies to everybody that's saved in the church age. Everyone that receives eternal life by virtue of the apostolic gospel. That's verse 20. Those who believe in me through their word. The apostolic testimony of the, of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, a New Testament believer. Okay? A New Testament believer is the object of Jesus Christ's prayer here in John 17. And what's his prayer? That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You ever consider that as a part of our gospel message? The role of the Father as the sender? So that the cosmos may believe that God the Father sent God the Son. It's vital. And I've, I've never taught it like this. I've never seen the emphasis on this until the uh, hatred of God for strife spreaders. <laughs> and why does God hate strife spreaders so much? I mean, I would hate politicians more. Oh, same thing. 
Um, <laughs> strife spreaders. Um, I mean, if you think about all the things that could be hated, all of the sins, all of the evil, all of the, you know, abortion or, or murdering babies. I mean, think about all the big, ugly things that we typically think, well, God has to hate this. Spreading strife among brothers. Why is that listed so high? Well, understand the role of the sender. Are you sending strife? Are you sending reconciliation? Are you sending peace? Are you seeking for the things that make for peace with one another? Okay, Because we're to be imitators of the Father, which means we better be sending peace. We better be reconciling one another. So far as it depends on you, be at peace. Okay? So maybe we shouldn't be so surprised at this, but ever since uh, looking at this emphasis, I've started spotting more and more of these uh, places where, you know what? That the world may believe that you sent me. Our church unity in the Father and in the Son, our, our fellowship with the Father and in the Son, ought to be such that we are communicating the sending role of the Father. The role of the Father is the sender of the Son. I find that uh, extraordinary. All right, verse 22 then. The glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. So there's more giving, there's more sending, all of which is designed for unity. It's not designed for discord. It's not designed for strife. It's not designed to drive believers apart. It's designed to bring us together, okay? To bring us together together in every way imaginable. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. See, strife between brothers keeps us from this perfection, keeps us from this unity. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And so here it is, okay? Ah, there's so much here. Anyway, that's the High Priestly Prayer in John 17. We taught it in the Life of Christ series, and uh, those notes are available. 1 Timothy 2.5, of course. There is one God, one mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus. But now having said that, what else must we say about this one mediator? 1 Timothy 2. Verse 1 says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Four different prayer words. Entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgivings. For kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet bios in all godliness and dignity. Why do we pray for political leaders? Because they're the ones that have sovereignty over our bios, over our secular life, our temporal life our biological life. And we want our biological life to be tranquil and quiet. We want freedom in our land, in our community, to attend our churches, to study the Word of God, to serve Jesus Christ. So this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. A stable society is is useful for gospel preaching. (laughs) <laughs> all right and if we've got freedom in our land freedom to, to evangelize freedom to give the gospel well then there you go so pray for the tranquil and quiet bios and so and the freedom to uh, to preach christ now in the father's desire 
for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, what do we have? Again, we have that father heart that is reaching those arms out to draw in people into his embrace. We have the, the attitude of the father that desires to bring lost humanity back to him. And, and even if it costs him his son, he's willing to do that. And so there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, the one and only way. And, and, of course, we preach that, the exclusive gospel, the one and only way. There cannot be multiple ways. There cannot even be two. And we can prove that. There cannot be two. If there was a second way available, then the cross was not necessary. And the Father could have saved his Son and said, no, go do that other way and come to me. But no, it was the only way possible. Who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Now, Notice, though, if there's one mediator, but understand, that's now us, right? Because we are in Christ. Christ is in us. That the one mediator who went to the cross that that provided eternal life, that took away sin, is he done now mediating? Is he done now in his role? No. He's still active in his role, but it's no longer through an incarnation and an earthly ministry. Now it is through us, okay? Remember, the incarnation was his embodiment in the flesh, but now the body of Christ is us in the church age. We are the ones that have the ministry of reconciliation committed to us, the body of Christ. So there still remains one mediator between God and man, but that's us in Christ in uh, the fulfillment there. And so for this, I think the application I want to make under point B then should drive the point home, a sent one must be faithful and true to the one who sent him. A sent one must be faithful and true to the one who sent him. That's why he hates the one who spreads strife among brothers. Because the one who spreads strife among brothers is the most faithful and true servant that our adversary has. The strife spreaders are the uh, teacher's pet, if you will, for Satan. They are the, uh, the, the prime agents of our adversary. A sent one must be faithful and true to the one who sent him. And if you think about it, all, and these other six sins, um, you know, from the, the exalted eyes to the lying tongue to the hands that shed innocent blood, uh, the heart that's devising wickedness. Um, I, th- I think in, in most of those, yeah, they could be serving the adversary in that, but mostly, I think a lot of this is simply just their own carnality, their own lust, they're serving themselves, they're self-serving. The reflections of the adversary, but the, the actual agents of strife spreading are minions, they are agents, they are, they are tools of the adversary. Not, what do they gain out of spreading strife? You know, what do you gain by, by driving wedges between others? The adversary gains a lot. Now, if, um, if Proverbs 6 was the last word and the only word on spreading strife, then I might be building a pretty weak case in this regard. Uh, but there's other passages that talk about sent ones and the necessity 
for a sent one to be faithful and true beyond Proverbs 6. And in fact, I think most people would not even include Proverbs 6 in this because they would just simply translate spread instead of send and, and not think much about it. All right? But what does it say in Proverbs 10? Proverbs 10, 26. Other participle uses, by the way, or other verbal uses of shalach. Proverbs 10, 26. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. <laughs> All right? If, if you are a sent one, then you doggone well better accomplish the purpose for why they sent you. And if you're going to be lazy about it, the one who sent you is not going to be pleased. The one who sent you is going to regret it. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. It's quite unpleasant, <laughs> right? It's the, uh, the uh, imagery on this. Obviously, of course, Jesus was not this. Jesus was so faithful to the reason why he was sent and so obedient to his Father. He was not uh, vinegar to the Father's teeth or smoke to the Father's eyes because he is faithful and true, pleasing to the one who sent him. Over to Proverbs 22. Twenty-two, twenty-one. Now, uh, this comes at the end of a paragraph here where uh, it says, Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. Apply your mind to my knowledge. It will be pleasant if you keep them within you, that they may be ready on your lips, so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth? that you may correctly answer him who sent you. That you may correctly answer him who sent you. So there it is again in Proverbs twenty-two twenty-one. A sent one must be faithful and true to the one who sent him, and I would add to that, must be oriented to the Word of God. Must be oriented to the Word of God, the plan of God, and uh, so forth as we see it here. Twenty-five thirteen. Proverbs 25.13. See, when you're dealing with sending a person or a thing, it's not the thing being sent. It's the, 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 the real impact comes in the one who's doing the sending and why. God hates the strife spreader, not because of the strife that's produced, but because of the one that's sending the strife and why. Proverbs 25.13. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his master. All right. There's a aspect there I'm going to have to figure out before I get to chapter 20, because I don't understand it. If I'm a farmer, I don't like snow, but I've never been a farmer. So hopefully I'll figure that out before we teach chapter 25. Chapter 26. Ooh, this is not good. He cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Who sends a message by the hand of a fool? <laughs> you know, you better have a trustworthy messenger. A sent one must be faithful and true to the one who sent him. And if you're going to pick a fool, if you're going to send a fool to do something, you know, you're just cutting off your own feet, drinking violence. 
like the legs which are useless to the lamb, so is a proverb in the mouth of fools. <laughs> All right, we'll have some fun with that. Obviously, then, it's not only in Proverbs. So here's, here's the use in Proverbs of shalach, of sending, and the requirement then that the one who's doing the sending is either going to be happy with the one he sent or unhappy with the one he sent. And it comes down to whether or not the, the one sent is accomplishing the purpose of the one who sent him. Okay? Again and again and again, we find that the sender is either very pleased or, or, or quite displeased actually suffering consequences of sending a, a, a dumb choice, okay? And, and so it is with the strife spreaders, all right? The impact is not on the, the results of the strife, but the fact that the strife spreaders are pleasing to the one they're serving in the, as agents of, of, of Satan, as agents of, of the one that's opposed to our Father, that's why the Father has such hatred. That's why it's the pinnacle of the Father's hate. That seventh item. That seventh item. It comes to the, to the exact opposite of, of what the Father's trying to do. In some respects, this is what Satan started in the Garden of Eden with uh, uh, spreading of strife and in, uh, manipulating Eve and bringing about Adam's fall. He's been doing it ever since. When you get to the Gospels, of course, you have the faithfulness of our Savior. John 5, 37. They're all in the Gospel of John, you'll notice. I threw in Romans 8, 3, just for a bonus. But so many of these come in, in uh, the Gospel of John. John 5, 37. And again, you've got a participle for most of these. It's not a participle of shalach. It's a participle of uh, either pempo or apostello, depending. Most of them are pempo. John 5, 37. Yeah, and here's uh, his rebuke. So many of these come in uh, conflicts. And, uh, boy, what did I pick up here? He heals this man and makes him mad because it's the Sabbath day. So he says, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And the man became well, picked up his pallet, began to walk. And then wouldn't you know it, it was the Sabbath on that day. Doggone it. Jesus just has the worst luck. <laughs> he keeps doing these healing miracles and making the Pharisees all mad. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it's, not, it's the Sabbath, it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. And this is what then sparks the whole argument for the rest of the chapter. And uh, so they come and start persecuting Jesus for doing things on a Sabbath. And he said, my father is working until now, I myself am working. That's verse 17. Now they're even more mad. Now they want to kill him even more. He's a Sabbath breaker, and he's calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's why it's so ludicrous when people say that Jesus never claimed deity. Again and again and again and again, we see that here. All right. Anyway, we come on down. There's other messages. There's other back and forth. He says in verse 31, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. A single witness is never accepted in any court. Even if he can't lie, we, we want to confirm it with a mouth of two or three. There is another who testifies of me. I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You've sent to John. He testified to the truth. And, uh, of course, you hated him. The testimony which I receive is not from man. And 
and so forth. And then verse 36, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works I do testify about me. You know, how many lame men have you guys healed? How many demons have you guys cast out? That kind of a thing. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me, He has testified of me, and you have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. You do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He sent. All right, so faith in the sent one, but then also um, the emphasis here on the sending one, the Father who sent me and His testimony. The Father who sent me, He has testified of me. And so they're both in the they're both involved. I ultimately speaking, when you get saved, what are you believing in? How do you get saved? How does anybody get saved? You're believing in Christ. You're believing in the sent one. Well, why does that have any value? Well, because the promise of he who sent. Because the Father said that he was satisfied in what the Son accomplished. And so you are trusting in the faithfulness of the one who sent him. And the faithfulness of the one sent who accomplished the work on the cross. You have to, I think both sides are critical to understand. All right, so that's just John 5. Over to John 6. Comes up again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Who does the drawing? The sending one. And I will raise him up on the last day. Again, it's a participle for the one who sent me, the Father who sent me, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so the, the heart of the Father, he's the one that's doing the drawing. It's the, it's the nature of the Father and his personality to be embracing, to reach his arms out, and to draw people to himself. Okay? The very antithesis of which is the biggest hatred he has, the spreading of strife between brothers, pushing brothers away driving wedges between people. That's the antithesis of the Father's very nature. John 7.28 And this is great. Because I spend more time in John 7, at least lately, I don't know why. Um, It has nothing to do with Isaiah or Proverbs or... (laughs) Or uh, Galatians. I don't know, maybe as the ordination approaches and I'm thinking about ministries and I'm thinking about, we read a thing this morning about church growth and uh, everybody has an opinion of what do you need to do to, make, to grow a bigger ministry, you know? Here's his brothers, Jesus' brothers, they're not even saved, but they've sure got opinions about how he can improve his ministry, Right? So his brothers are like, hey, you know, leave here. Go up to Judea. Go to Jerusalem. Galilee, this is small potatoes. You need a bigger stage. Your uh, disciples need to see the works which you're doing. You, you seek to be known publicly. Show yourself to the world. Get on the big stage. For not even his brothers were believing in him. And so, anyway, there's, there's a lot we can teach out of this chapter. He finally does go later. He sneaks in, in secret, and and, and all the people are talking, well, why isn't he here yet? Is he coming? Is he not coming? He never misses this feast and, and so forth. And so there's all the whispering. And then finally he does. He stands up and he starts preaching and, and they're amazed. Wow, this is him. <laughs> okay, this is him. But in the process of this, verse 28, um, 
He cries out on the temple. See, they're, they're a little bit confused. In verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man they're seeking to kill? Isn't this the guy they got the arrest warrant out for? Look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know this is the Christ, do they? They're starting to suspect something. They say, wait a minute. They issued an arrest warrant for this guy. Do they, do they think he's the Christ? Are they, are they going to arrest the Christ? They've called him a blasphemer and they issued an arrest warrant, but do they know that he's the Christ? And they're doing this anyway? However, we know where this man is from. Whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. I find this interesting too. The, the crowds have been kept ignorant. The Pharisees, and the, they know full well where he's from. Anyway, then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I'm from. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. If you don't know the Father, then you don't know he who sent me. Okay? He who sent Jesus Christ. In fact, what is the definition of eternal life? That they may know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Is that on my list? It better be. All right. A sent one must be faithful and true to the one who sent him. John, well, goodness, John chapter 8, we've got four verses there. John 12, we've got another verse, Romans 8, of course. And then our role. This applies to members of the body of Christ. We also are sent ones. And are we sent to spread strife amongst one another? <laughs> Did he send us out? Did he say, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves and try to drive wedges between yourselves? <laughs> Go join the wolves, devour and eat one another? No. He did not send us to devour, to bite, to devour. Okay? In fact, that's the opposite of what we've got warning passages against that. All right, well, we'll pick up on this next week. And then uh, we'll be able to move on into verses 20 through 35 and uh, wrap up uh, the final portion here of Proverbs chapter 6. And we're back to more parental stuff. We've got some more sex stuff. We've kind of been away from the sex since chapter 5. But we get back to uh, the adulteress, the soul hunter, and um, stick a torch down your shirt in verse 27. Can a man take a fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? <laughs> All right. You're playing with fire and that's nothing to play with. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll be back into that kind of stuff in verses 20 through 35. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your very nature and what we're learning, Father, and why it is that you hate strife, the strife spreaders so much. Those that are uh, serving the adversary in the, in the uh, discord, in the strife, in the um, driving wedges between brothers. Uh, Father, we're supposed to be close. We're supposed to uh, be in Christ, the one that sticks closer than a brother. And I pray that we would learn what the true intimacy is all about, not the, not the phoniness of, of artificial things that pass for, uh, for uh, churches today, but the true intimacy, the true fellowship that comes with you, with your Son, under the filling and power of the Holy Spirit. 
Father, the true unity that comes by abiding in You and abiding in Your Son and abiding in Your Word. And I pray that we ourselves would identify as sent ones. Sent ones not to spread strife, but to spread unity, to spread peace, to spread like-mindedness. Father, there's no uh, harmony between Christ and Belial. There's no commonality between light and darkness. And I pray that we would be agents of the, of the peace, not agents of the strife. And I thank you, Father, for teaching us these principles in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.